with um, Michael McIntyre doing a live mm. live gig in the in the evening, and um, he had this incredibly funny piece around um, an Australian. He said he said, "Oh, I was watching telly the other day." He said, "You know, and there was an Australian." He was in hospital, you know. He was all done up. He had his neck thing. He had his arm in a thing. He'd been he's been attacked by a shark, and the and the and the guys from the TV were saying to him, you know, hey, what happened? He said, "Oh, truth, mate. I was I was out surfing, and then this shark. He came out of nowhere, and he bit." So anyway, to tell the story, he goes, he goes, and I was watching this thing. I said, "The shark. He came out of nowhere." The shark came out of the sea. That's where the shark <laughs> lives. You. You were basically on a plate. He said, "It's not like you know you're emptying the dishwasher." And he thought, "Struth, Struth, the sharks come from nowhere. He's been me." I love that. Yeah, I was attacked by a shark. Why were you like Starbucks? It was terrible. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to what is going to be the, if not the fiftieth episode of Broken Oars Podcast, then certainly our fiftieth download to our very gracious host, Podbean. So. Um, we decided that it was probably very important to get arguably for a podcast that is principally interested in domestic and club rowing, one of the most important guests we've ever had on. And so without further ado, may I introduce uh, the chairman of British Rowing, Mr. Mark Davies. Thank you for having me. We're delighted. So um, obviously, there are loads of things that you know we want to talk about there's there's the olympic side there's the club side there's the structure of british rowing there's your role in in british rowing i mean sort of what does the chairman do but first of all maybe tell us a little bit about yourself your your history in the sport and around the sport mark lewin does this kind of open-ended question thing that leaves <laughs> guests going what everything from birth like, yeah, like yeah, absolutely. How long do you want me to talk for? I started rowing in 1990, and I got into a boat when I first got to university. And I, the reason I did it principally was because I'd gone to a rowing school, but I played cricket. So half my mates rowed, and half of us played cricket. And basically, if you turned up and you could catch a ball, then you carried on playing cricket. And if you couldn't, then you rowed. So all us cricketers were very rude about the rowers. We used to say they were all very mal-coordinated and, you know, basically be rude about them. And um, so half of my friends were very, very into rowing and half of my friends thought it was a silly sport. And so when I got to university and I had the chance to do both, I thought, well, I'll give it a go. So I went along down to the boathouse and I jumped in a boat and um, they said to me, oh, you seem to have some idea how to move a boat, um, but you're pretty small. Um, so you've got to make a decision really, because you could row for a bit, but you're not going to get into any of the major crews. You'll get into our sort of first novices crew. And then after that, you're going to struggle. So, um, have you thought about coxing? And, um, long and the short was that I said, yeah, okay, I'd give it a go. And 18 months later, I found myself sitting on the boat race start for Goldie and, um, so I had a very exciting few years doing university stuff. I'm going to dive in, Lou, and and as this podcast you know, unravels, and and believe me, it will unravel, Mark. You'll find that Lou tends to ask the serious, sensible, science and evidence based questions, and and I tend to ask the the stupid stuff. I guess one of the the first things that struck me is rowing. Now we live and die by our, our metric. Essentially, your your sporting metric was 
can you catch a ball? If so, yes, you're going to be a cricketer. If you can't, you are a natural rower. Were you naturally sporty growing up? Was there a bent towards fresh air and exercise uh, as much as the academic side? Or was it a fairly kind of balanced outlook? And, and did that feed in from your family side? For those who aren't aware, your, yeah. your father is the inimitable Barry Davies. So was there an awareness of sport, a wider, a wider awareness of sport growing up and its, its potential opportunities? Yeah, I played a lot of sport as a youngster. I, I played a lot of football, I played a lot of cricket, and I played for for schools all the way up at various levels. And um, I very much enjoyed my cricket when I was a nipper, and therefore I carried on doing it. But um, yeah, I mean, it was I was also I was relatively small. I still am relatively small, and um, although I'm not quite as skinny as I used to be. As a result, I uh, I was never going to be a, a a great oarsman and. Cricket was just something I enjoyed, but yeah, I mean the answer to the question is I did I played a, I played a lot of sport one way or another. Well, when you transitioned from being in the boat to being the cox, and and this is obviously we've had people like Rory on um, Rory Corpus on, uh, and we've talked about the role of of the cox before on the on the podcast. We and I think Loon would agree with me here. We had wonderful coxes at Agecroft and Maddie and Lucy. And they're very much an integral part of the crew. Did you see it as a demotion? Oh, I can't row, but I can kind of steer. Or did you actually realise that you're an integral part of the crew and, and your success in the boat race is actually, you're as much a part of it as the eight other oarsmen? Well, my crew's made it very easy for me because we we won most of the things that we were involved in by, by a fair way. My Goldie crew in 95 won by, I think it was 16 lengths. So right. they didn't really need a great deal from me. Um, although, you know, we had a few races, obviously, that were that were closer, um, some of which I played a helpful role in and some of which I didn't. Um, but no, I mean, I think the answer to the question is, I, I, what I missed as a Cox was not actually taking part in the physical exercise. So I used to do as much of the land training as, as I could every time we were on ergos in the morning. I was much keener to be on an ergo than I was to be doing any kind of, you know, taking of rates or all metrics or motivating at that point. Obviously, I couldn't do that when we were doing gym work, but I, I did make sure I got on the ergo as often as I could. Um, and then, you know, as part of the whole sort of weight loss thing, because I'm I'm relatively tall for a cox, I'm five foot ten. So though I was a skinny little chap, um, you know, I needed to make sure I kept my weight down. And for reasons I won't bore you with, I was very, very keen in my second boat race to make sure that I hit weight. Um, and so I spent an awful lot of time on an exercise bike doing very low intensity um, fat burning stuff and weighed in at a ridiculously low weight. <laughs> I mean, did that, because I've always felt that that's just one absolutely guaranteed way of getting a crew to believe in and trust a cox is if they're doing land training as well i mean did you find that yeah i mean i definitely i i, I adopted an approach look I, I i was very i was a very um inexperienced cox as i say it took me 18 months to go from being a complete novice so that was October 1990 was the first time I got into a boat. And April 1992, uh, I was sitting on the start um, at Putney. So what's that? 18 months, exactly 18 months. 
Um, so I was very, very inexperienced. And I had made so many mistakes during that period. Um, I, yeah, I spent the first nine months with my college, and then it, it was suggested to me that I go along and trial for the university. I did. I got into a boat of, I thought, very, very experienced people. It was a Goldie Blue Boat composite. And they were all names of people that I had heard and revered over the course of, of, of recent months. And I got in and decided that really I only I could only just cox them as if they were my novice crew <laughs> because I didn't know anything any better. Um, and so I had a certain amount of chutzpah, I suppose, that um, played to my advantage. And when when things went really badly wrong on a couple of occasions, they stuck with me. And when eventually they selected me, uh, the, that year's president pulled me aside and he said to me, look, you know, the very first time you got in the boat, I decided that um, somebody who could give as good as he was getting, because I, I got a little bit of flack from some of the guys, um, was worth sticking with. And um, yeah, I did very much sort of try and play to my play to my strengths and one of my strengths was that i was you know reasonably active reasonably sporty and um could do a lot of stuff with the guys when you come to british rowing um on the organizational side more recently 2018 am i right no that's right yeah, yeah april um yeah. You, you you come from um british archery i mean was British rowing always kind of like, yeah, I've got my eyes on that job. Or was it kind of, okay, this has opened up. I've kind of got something that I can add here. A little bit of both. So the, the Archer GB job was was an interesting one in that I was approached by a headhunter for that. And when they rang and said that we're looking for somebody who can be a non-exec director at, at Archer GB, I said, well, I'm not sure why you're calling me because I literally have never picked up a bow and arrow and knew nothing about it. And they said, well, actually, we, we're looking for somebody who's just going to come from the outside and look at it with a fresh pair of eyes. And that was just to be a non-exec director. But in the first batch of board papers that I got, the first thing on the agenda was election of the chair. And I said, well, what's that all about? And they told me that the previous incumbent had lost a, a vote of confidence at the AGM and had, had to resign and that therefore they had to pick a new chair. Uh, the chair had to come from within the board and the two people standing were the chair who had resigned and somebody who had sort of led the faction against him. And I said, this doesn't sound like the ideal scenario to start off. I said, do you not realise that you need an independent chair? And I offered to write them a paper as to why it better to have somebody independent doing it. And I suggested that one of the two non-exec directors who was who were already on the board and put themselves forward. And I said, look, you know, if nobody does, I'll put myself forward. But really, I know nothing about the sport and I, and I don't know any of you either. So, you know, you really should go for one of the guys that that has has some experience. Anyway, cut a long story short, the first um, item on the board agenda comes about. I'm asked to leave the room and I come back and they told me that actually I was going to be chairing it going forward. So I found myself chair of Archery GB really by default more than anything else. And I'd been doing that role for a few years and I very much enjoyed it. There was a lot that we could get done and, um, you know, we had some real ups and downs, but uh, I think we made some good changes. And then I got called by somebody who said to me, have you seen that the British rowing are looking for a new chair? And I said, I said, I have. And he said, well, are you going to apply? And I said, well, why on earth would I do that? I said, they've got so many people that um, they could use to good effect. They've got so many uh 
people who are well known in 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 the sport and in international. They've got gold medalists coming out of their ears. They'd never want somebody of my profile. And he said, well, I think you're wrong. He said, I think they absolutely want somebody of your profile. And the question is whether you have any interest in doing the job. And and I said, I said, look, I'd absolutely love to do it. Um, and he said, well, why don't you apply? So I applied. And six weeks later, I found myself appointed. So, yeah, that's a long way of saying that when I took the archery job, I, I, I took it really because not because I had an interest in archery, but because I thought to myself, I'd like to get into sports governance and I've got to start somewhere and nobody's going to offer me a big job um, unless I've got that experience. And then when I came for interview at British Rowing, there is no question at all in my mind that had I not had the archery experience, I wouldn't have been appointed, but I was able to talk in, in some way knowledgeably about the way sports structures work and um, the difficulties of being in the chair of a sport and the difficulties of running a sport and the, and the tension that exists between the national governing body and its members and um, in terms of what we're trying to achieve and what people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis and how the national governing body is viewed. And I, I think all that is common across all sports. You know, there couldn't be two more different sports than archery and rowing, and yet the the, the challenges that face the NGB are very, very similar. And so I was able, as a result of AGB, to talk in a fairly sensible manner at interview. And um, I think that's probably why I was appointed a combination of, of all those things. We had Drew uh, Jin on recently, and he talked about his experiences with uh, Cricket Tasmania. And what they were looking for was someone who had the knowledges that you're talking about, how sporting structures work, how high performance environments operate, but who could look at a sport with a fresh pair of eyes. And I'm getting the sense that the ind individual that you talked to felt that that's possibly what British rowing were looking for, someone who had that background, but who could come into the sport fresh. For, for people who aren't really aware about how NGBs operate and um, how British rowing operates, could you outline what some of the difficulties or tensions might be in within a sporting structure and within the environment and, 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 and how you help to negotiate and mediate those tensions? Yeah, look, I think, I think the, the basic point is that most people who do sport do it without any reference to the national governing body and don't think about the national governing body on a day-to-day -day basis and don't see what the national governing body adds to their experience of the sport. So whether it's, you know, as I mentioned, I play football every week and I, I don't ever consider that I would join the FA as a member. Why, why should I? I don't think that the FA contributes to my enjoyment of the game. And in a similar way, I think people, you know, they just want to get into boats. They just want to go out and paddle and sometimes race, um, but ultimately just enjoy themselves and enjoy the sport. And they look at the NGB and they think this is an organisation that just tells us what we can't do and makes my life difficult and extracts a sub from me for the privilege of telling me what to do. And, of course, they don't think about all the things that the NGB brings the fact that it, it, it makes sure that the sport is safe, that it, it ensures that rules are adhered to, it protects people um, in times of trouble. Um, it is a go-to that, you know, whenever there is any issue, 
uh, and it helps people to, to to solve problems in addition to keeping them safe. So they don't think of that necessarily in the same way as if you have insurance, you sort of see it sometimes as a as a wasted cost until the day that your house burns down. And then the day that your house burns down, you're very happy that you insured it. But if you look back on 50 years of an unburnt down house and you look at how much you've paid in insurance premiums, you, you can categorize that in a very different way. Um, so I think that you know people don't immediately see what the NGB does for them. And in addition to that, they see it doing things that actually they actively might not want to happen, or at least that they think intrudes on what they're doing. I will say to people, you know, the, the clue of the word club is, well, it's in the word, right? A club is a club. And that means that it's a group of people that want to get on and do things their way with like-minded people. And um, then suddenly NGB comes along and says, well, you ought to do this and you ought to do that. And they might want to turn around and say, well, no, we don't. It's our club. We want to do things our way. So there, there is just a tension between what members and clubs want and what an NGB would like to do for the sport as a whole. Um, we, as the, as the board of British Rowing, um, I, I think we are trustees of the sport whose job it is to hand the sport on to the next generation in a better shape than we inherited it. And to do that in a very competitive world, we have to make sure that the sport is growing and not shrinking. Um, and when I say a competitive world, I mean lots of sports out there competing for the attention of young people to come into them. Because otherwise, the sport will eventually shrink on the vine and wither away. And so we're always trying to sort of grow the sport, when, whereas when you're in it, right now, straight away, getting out in your crew, getting out on the water in your sculling boat, you're not interested in the growth of the sport as such. But a few years down the line, if you watch your sport in decline, you'd be saying, well, that's a great shame to see that. If, if, if rowing went, I don't know, the way of fives um, or, you know, some other sort of slightly obscure um, sports, you, I think we would all be very disappointed 20 years from now. Um, but it's not necessarily something you think about when you're out on the water in the here and now. Would I be right in saying that there is almost a legal requirement for a national governing body to exist? It gets very difficult to be a sports club without a national go governing body for things like safeguarding and insurance. And Yeah. Yes, in increasingly that is true. I mean, obviously, there are people that can do sport, you know, outside the auspices of a national governing body. But it, if the national governing body didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent it. And it, ultimately, if if British Rowing or any other NGB doesn't do its job, then rival factions could spring up and govern the sport. I mean, just look at boxing. Boxing has umpteen different governing bodies because they always think that the other ones haven't done it right and so a new faction has has come along and there are sort of all sorts of competing organizations within the structure of british sport there is also obviously the fact that money comes from government to sport in order to help grow the sport and 
there needs to be a vehicle to do that. And British rowing is, is the vehicle. Ultimately, if British rowing consistently failed in doing that, and you guys suddenly decided you were going to set up a, a governing body and you could get clubs to affiliate to you rather than affiliating to BR, you could do that. Um, and then you could bid to government as the organisation that should get the money that you can filter through. Um, but there is always a requirement for some level of governance, even if there are some people who say, well, actually me just in my sculling boat, getting it out of a boat shed at the bottom of the garden and putting it on the river, I, I don't necessarily need to answer to anybody. But the day that that single sculler crashes into somebody who decides to sue him and he doesn't know where to turn, um, he'll probably wish, he or she will probably wish that uh, they were affiliated to, um, to, to an organisation that could help. In terms of talking about governance, something you mentioned to me the other day when when we had a chat before this one is you set up Crabtree. I did, yeah. Um, when did that happen? And I mean, presumably, when you're talking about growing club membership, that must have been a fairly sort of integral part of your understanding and experience of the necessity for that. Well, uh, funnily enough, it, it, it speaks to one of the major challenges that all NGBs have, and rowing is, is no different from anybody else in this regard, which is that the major drop-off of membership occurs when people come down from university and their lives change fundamentally. They go into a job, they become busier, um, they might start a family, and from the age of about 23, 24, to the time that they might return to their sport in their 40s, they don't have any involvement. And I found that that was exactly what was happening when I came down from university. And I found that nearly all my friends who I had spent a few very, very fun years rowing with were either, well, were basically giving up. And I thought, well, that's a shame that just because they've rowed to a very high standard uh, and now they don't have the time to commit in the same way as they, they have done, but the only way to stay involved in the sport is to commit to however many days a week it is training and the regularity of being in a boat. Uh, and then they're going to be part of a club crew where they might not reach the same sort of level that, that they have been rowing at as a result of that was that they just gave up. And I, I thought to myself, well, there must be a mechanism by which we can get these people just into a boat. So I thought to myself, well, if I set up a boat club and I make the requirement, nothing more than that you make it clear when you are available and that composite crews go out at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and the first eight people to sign up will be the first eight oarsmen in the boat. Um, why not? Why can't we do that? All I need is a boat, some blades and somewhere to house it. So I went to Thames Rowing Club and I said to them, could I rent a boat rack? And there was a chap there in charge at the time. I think the captain was called Chris George. And he looked at me slightly oddly and said, I'm not sure why we'd want to do that. But yes, we can lent, we can rent you one rack. And I can't remember where I got the boat from now. I got the boat from somewhere different. But anyway, I rented a boat, rented some blades, rented a boat rack and just said to the guys, right, guys, let's do this in the same way as I do my football every week, which is that we all just put on a website when we're available. And then we turn up and we know that there'll always be a, a seven-a-side match. 
Um, and that was how we started. And people would jump into cruise on a Sunday morning. And because they were all very talented oarsmen, they would, you know, be able to go out and have a very decent paddle of, of with the eight of them. Um, and then very quickly, those who wanted to do it more seriously did it more seriously, more frequently, I think, I suppose, rather than more seriously. Um, but they didn't have to commit in the same way as you traditionally do to a set time and a, and a, and a set number of outings. They were much more ad hoc about the way they went about it. And that was how Crabtree started. And then fairly soon after that, I saw that the uh, that Shell was selling the Lensbury Boathouse and I, I I just decided I would write to them and bid them for it. So I, I sent them a letter saying, um, I'll offer you, I think it was £225,000 for your boathouse. Of course, I didn't have £225,000. I was 24 years old and I didn't have two pennies to rub together. Um, but they came back and said, it's yours. You're the highest bidder. You can have it. Uh, at which point I thought, ah, oh, okay, I've now got to work out where I get the money. <laughs> So I then ran around from a lot of people and tried to get a load of meetings together and um, tried to persuade various people to get involved. And at one of the meetings, uh, a chap called Olaf Brun was sitting next to me, his um, sons, he had three sons, all of whom were keen oarsmen. And he turned to me quietly in the meeting and he said, if you can't get the money from everybody else, I will sort this out for you, uh, providing we come to an agreement. And so we came to an agreement that I would find a way to take it off him within 10 years and he put the money up for us to buy it and so we bought it and that's where Crabtree are to this day. Fantastic you make it sound fairly easy um but I mean what would be the basic thing because it, it's something when I think about how do we take rowing forward how do we grow the sport um and it, I mean, it's something I quite like to come back to is, is the nature of rowing clubs. I mean, what would you say is the key thing from your experience? If we're setting up a boat club, what three things do we do we have to have in place before we even say, right, this is the name of the club? Um, well, I think the, the, the point is there aren't necessarily set things. I think the, the reason that this is quite challenging is that people have different requirements and wishes and aims and the key is to try and cater to as many people as possible and therefore be as flexible as possible and one of the reasons that i'm as passionate as i am about having a mechanism whereby people can row on a leisure basis um or perhaps i should say on a more ad hoc basis is because I think it's a great shame that we lose so many people in our sport to more flexible ways of staying fit. I think ours is the best way of staying fit. Um, and it's certainly the one that creates the greatest bonds of friendship and camaraderie. Um, but people drop it because it's not necessarily flexible enough. And I think that there, there are, uh, and there should be more ways of making it more flexible. So the answer to your question, Lewin, is I don't think there are necessarily three things because the three things are different for everybody. There are some people that just want to, you know, go at it hammer and tongs all the time. There are some people that don't. And if your work schedule or your family schedule doesn't permit 
the sort of rigor that generally comes with rowing, it is, in my view, a great shame that that should be an excuse for you to give the sport up. Our background is, you know, we we both met at Agecroft, which was quite a serious high performance club in terms of a lot of its um, outward ambitions, although, it, you know, it, it does have a great community side. And I think that we were probably among the rarities in as much as we kept on training the 20 odd hours a week on top of our regular professional jobs as well. Um, and there was to a certain degree, there's a certain amount of pride with, with comes with identifying as Aurora, knowing that you've done the training and that you're aiming for Henley or for whatever, you know, whatever placement at head of the river or, or whatever you're doing. But I now row at um, Tyne United, which is, which is um, it's very much in the way you describe Crabtree. You kind of put your name down when the roster goes out on a Sunday night and you, you get, you just get assigned to a boat. So everybody rows with, with everyone else. And if you can make it great, and if you can't, then we'll see you next week. And, and so there is room within the system as a whole to have the high performance clubs that want to do well at, you know, and club events and the high performance centers that go on to stream for the elite performance centers. But there are, there's room for the community bases as well. Was that one of the things when you came in, was that one of the challenges that you saw coming into the job to, to see where the sport was? Um, and you were very aware that there's a, there's a drop off when people leave university and, you know, life, career, relationships, family, all of those things start taking up time. We tend to lose people for 10 or 15 years and then they might come back when the children are a bit older or they're more settled in their career or whatever. Was that, I'm getting the sense that was very much one of the challenges that you, you faced. Well, it was one of the opportunities. Um, I mean, the, the, the biggest challenge that we had was that the finances of BR were, were not in a good shape. And we had been overspending as, as, as an organisation for quite some time. And our reserves had gone down fairly substantially over a period of a number of years from 2012. And um, we weren't matching the costs of running the sport with the income that we were getting and running a structural budget deficit can't be done for very long. So the, the, the very first problem was one of finance. Now, how do you deal with a financial problem? Well, obviously you can cut things so that you have fewer costs or you can grow your way out of it or increase your income streams. And the income streams that we have as an organization are threefold. We get money from government, which is not something that's about to go up. Um, we get money in from commercial opportunities or sponsors um, or partnerships, which is a very, very competitive environment and not necessarily easy to get, particularly in a relatively small sport. Um, and then there's membership income. So membership income was the obvious means by which we could address our financial problem. But how do you increase membership income? Either you put up membership subs in which case you exacerbate the problem that you've got because people aren't happy with the membership subs, so they then churn away from the sport. And you're forever in operating in ever-decreasing circles, having to put up your subs with fewer and fewer people to generate the same amount of income. Or you dramatically increase the number of members. And if you can increase the number of members effectively, then eventually you can bring the subs down. So I was very much of the view that we ought to be able to increase dramatically the membership numbers that we had, particularly bearing in mind that 10,000 people a year churn away from membership 
of the national governing body because they give up okay. racing because they leave university or they leave school. And at that point, they decide, well, they don't need insurance and they don't need a race license. So why don't I just drop my membership? So of our 30,000 members that we have at the moment, a third are new every year. And if you take that 10,000 that fall away and you think how many years worth of people there are out there that have therefore been members of BR over some point of their sporting lives, that's a very large number of people. And I said to the guys right at the start, our challenge is to reduce the churn of people that that drop out, the 10,000 that drop out every year, but also to recapture as many of the 10,000s over the years who have left as we possibly can. And that begs the question, well, why did they go in the first place? And my view is not that they suddenly decided they didn't like rowing anymore, but that their lifestyles changed and that they couldn't engage with the sport in the way that they had for all the reasons we've just discussed. So for me, the solution was the solution to our financial problem was exactly what I wanted to see happen anyway, which was to retain more people in the sport for longer. Because once you've got the rowing bug, you know what a difference it can make. It's a lifelong passion. And you don't stop doing it because you wanted to stop doing it. You stop doing it because it becomes inconvenient to continue to do it. And and how is that going? I mean, sort of from from 2018 to now i mean i think i remember you you putting that um that blog post out there it, it was it it's the membership silly or something like that um i mean how 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 are, are we succeeding in growing the number of of members uh we're making slow slower progress than i hoped or we did make slower progress than i hope we would over for uh, over the first period of time Although that's partly my fault because I came in like a bull in a china shop and thought that everyone would sort of pick this up, you know, as passionately as as I hold to it. And I I thought that people would would sort of grab it with both hands and say, yeah, that's a good idea, let's do it. And in blundering into it too quickly, I lost a lot of people that I think, you know, should have been carrying with me. And so I set myself and my own aims back some way. So that took a little bit of time to, for me to recorrect. Um, we have now got the finances on an even keel. So we will balance the books this year, um, which we haven't done now for a, a long time as an organization. And that gives us a, a stable platform off which we can build. And we are now starting to make some fairly significant inroads into what I think is needed to make the sport more flexible not least of which is allowing people to manage their membership much more flexibly than they do at the moment. And um, I'm hoping that we'll be launching that towards the back end of this year. There's a lot of work that's gone on, uh, a lot of consultation with various regional chairs and organisations, people within the sport as to whether it makes sense. But the the plan is to um, ensure that the very basic level of membership is just something that you get right without anything. And then after that, you buy things if you want to buy things. So being a member of British Rowing doesn't actually cost you anything. 
you are a member because you want to know about the sport and because you want to hear from us about what is happening in the sport, what's available, uh, what developments there are, how the national team is doing, what the results are on a given weekend, et cetera, et cetera. Just your general interest in the sport, we want to be the the, the place where you, are, you feel affiliated to in order to, to get all that. And then if you need anything after that, a, a race license, whether it's for a day or a week or a month or a year, um, and your insurance and any other any other tools that you need to manage your rowing life, then we provide that at further cost going forward. So we can cover our costs in a much more, I think, effective way um, and allow our members to be much more flexible in the way that they interact with us. I, I'm always saying to the guys, um, I'm always saying to Alastair, our chief exec, think about community, build community. Don't worry about numbers. Don't worry about the finances. The finances will deal with themselves if you build a community that's strong enough to, uh, to, to produce the right outcome. So think about building the community. And if we can do that, then the sport will grow. Can I just dive in there you you mentioned alistair the chief executive is, is that the chief executive officer yeah so ah right because one of the things i i was sorry um could you introduce alistair to the audience because i actually looked at the british rowing website and there's this like blank space where the ceo um it, it, you know on the board of governors there it seems as though we don't have a ceo no well we definitely do have a ceo and he's okay, doing, there we go. doing a great job he, he hasn't been in post for, for very long he was interim ceo before that okay so he, he came in as interim ceo in october and he uh, was appointed full-time i think at the start of april um if memory serves and um Yes, uh, we obviously need to update the website, which is something that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right, yeah, that, that 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 rules that that question out. We we had so essentially, we are, we're now kind of running ahead of the storm. Would you say? Um, look, I think we're doing more than that. Um, I, I think I think we are heading towards the sunlit uplands. Um, <laughs> look, I I, th I think we're. We're, um, yeah, look, the, the, the fact that we have now got the finances uh, on an even keel, I think makes a big difference because it does allow us to work out effectively where we're going to invest money. And by investment, I, I mean, you know, we've got to be producing things that we know what the payback on them is or we know what we want it to be and we're prepared to cut things quickly if we don't think they're going to get us there i'm i'm very much um of the view that you know you should be trying things and then if you're going to fail fail fast and move on to something else but not be concerned by trying and failing because ultimately you know we we all make mistakes we get things wrong and it's the, the phrase that you always hear, don't let perfection be the en enemy of the good. Um, you just have to get things out there rather than um, trying to perfect them behind the scenes and then launching them so much later than you originally wanted to, that the world has moved on by the time you do. Um, I'm very much you know, one for trying things out and... Um, iterating and reiterating and making things work as a result of that. 
Yeah, I, I think that um, you know most most histories of whether it's you know engineering, science, culture, you know the the first person through the door might not have got it right, but or, or perfectly right, but they were the first person through the door and they worked out the details once they'd actually impacted with it. Can I just ask a question of catchment? And I'd just like to flag up um, that I'm not asking this as the token northerner in the room. I'm a reasonable historian of rowing and. Um, cultural historian of, of kind of British identity and ha- ha- where it's come from. And without waving the flag too much, because there's a lot of union jacks around at the moment, but we're, we are essentially kind of the, the inv- one of the inventors of modern rowing as we know it, as a sort of, as an elite sport, but also as the club system has evolved through the decades and, you know, the last 150, 170 years. That's a really long history. And a lot of it is quite a class-bound history in terms of uh, the the sport itself, in terms of its social implications and its cultural implications. Obviously, I'm Northumbrian and we have Harry Clasper up here. So, you know, inventor of the sliding seat, the outboard rigger, but could never wrote Henley because he was, not because he was a northerner, but he was a tradesman essentially. And we've moved past that. We'd like to think we've built on that. And from the eighties onwards, you'd say that rowing both at the elite level and at the club level is kind of one of Britain's unsung. The elite levels gets a lot of praise, but the club structure, it's kind of a success story because it's kind of kept ticking along and it's evolved with the times and it's become somewhat more egalitarian. And at times it's been down to Key individuals been quite obsessed by pushing the sport forward. And then sometimes it's been because of the formalization of the sport after lottery funding. But there are still certain social and cultural implications to who can and who can't row and what the catchment areas might be. When you came in, was that one of the opportunities that you saw as a we can actually we can grow the sport outside of it, what's seen as its traditional bounds? I, I think that's something that had been recognized a long time ago by people uh, ages before I appeared. And, and there have been lots of attempts to, to get that right. Not all of them successful and, and some of them definitely in a more expensive way of, 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 of trying to do it than perhaps was sensible and not all of them scalable either, which, um, you know, is, is another, uh, another problem potentially, but I think the will to broaden that has existed for, well, some fairly significant time, I would say. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't say that I was the, by any means, somebody who suddenly came in and said, oh, look, we can do this. And nobody had thought of it before, because that would be miles from the truth. I, I think, I mean, I, I did come along with a, a desire to, should we say to I, I wanted the sport to be used much more broadly than it currently is. Um, and, and perhaps my ambition was unrealistic, but I, I've always taken the view that rowing is, is such a good sport for the three, well, three of the biggest issues that I think the, we face as a country, which are obesity, um, discipline in young people and mental health. And all sports on the whole is good for that. But I think rowing is is particularly good for all three. And I really wanted to see rowing being used as a, as a force for greater good in the country and being taken to areas that 
you know, it, it had never been in before and perhaps using sort of Section 106 agreements on housing developments in order to secure boat clubs in places around the country where there was development on the river in the same way as happened with Fulham Beach Boat Club in, in, in London. Um, so that was the, that was certainly the ambition when I first arrived, but, but it's a, it's a much slower burn than, than I thought it would be to get to there. And I think part of the reason for that is that, you know, we, we needed, we needed to address the financial position of, of the sport first. And that took a little bit of time to, to deal with it. These things always happen more slowly. I mean, I, I am known within my board and um, within the team at British Rowing. I think there are plenty of people within both those groups that see me as a bit of a bit of a loose cannon, um, shall we say, in that I I I I like I like um I like to encourage pace of delivery, which I think a, a number of the guys think is not realistic. But um I'm afraid that's a function of my background. It's fine. You like to go for it. And that's not a bad thing because, you know, by trying things, they some will come off, some will fail. But if you fail, then you've learned something and you can go and you can go again. I, I guess um, to kind of follow up on that from from my perspective, is it a little bit like the way that university used to be viewed in, in as much as it, if your parents had had gone or they they'd been they'd had the education enforced and forced to act in the fifties and sixties. And maybe the grammar schools finally got to go. And therefore, cause your parents went, you went, but if your parents hadn't, it wasn't necessarily something you'd think about. If your mum or dad have, have rode at some point, it's on the table, but if not, you might think, well, it's, it's, you know, w- without being yorked about it, it's not for the likes of me. I'll stick with my whippets and my racing pigeons and my lard sort of thing. Um, so there's a certain amount of cultural inertia that you're pushing against, as well as the kind of the structural um, process you have to deal with at British Rowing. Let me put it this way: I was I was a trustee at Sports Aid for ten years. Um, Sports Aid being the charity that that um, funds uh, aspiring Olympians before they become eligible for lottery funding, and I would go along to a lot of. Um, events that we did at sports aid and i would see a lot of people who i would think god you got the perfect build for an oarsman you've got all the right levers um you you look like you should get in a boat and i would go up to people and i'd say please tell me that you row and they'd say no i do basketball or i do you know something else and i'd say well, you know why don't you row and they just look at me like i was complete lunatic you know wh- wh- why would i even consider rowing you know rowing is not a sport for me that would would be their response and um, the reality is, that, you know, as we all know, rowing is a sport for everybody. I think we all know somebody who, whether it's, you know, the daughter of a friend or the next door neighbor's nephew or you know, somebody who will say, oh, God, you know, their life changed when they found rowing. Mm-hmm. Whenever I mention this to anyone, they say, oh, yeah, no, funny, funny you mentioned that because, you know, the guy, the, there was a guy down the road and, you know, he was always, you know, never into any sport. And then suddenly I see him going out of the door at six in the morning to go and train all the time since he found rowing. It, you know, it is life changing in a way that. Other sports aren't in that regard. I think there are a number of reasons for that. One of them potentially is that you come to it later in life and you do so often having spent whatever sporting hours you had at your school, wherever you were at school, perhaps doing a sport that always involved a ball and in many cases, therefore, just didn't work for you. And you don't think of there being something else that doesn't require that 
hand-eye coordination. And then suddenly you get to the age of 14, 15, and somebody says to you, well, you can jump in a boat and do something completely different. And it becomes a life-changing thing for you. It happens with so many people. And I'd like to see it happen with so many more people because the opportunity is huge. I grew up in the Derwent Valley in, in, in the Northeast, um, went to St. Thomas More School, very good school in the area. Where I currently row at Newburn is, is about a mile and a half from the school. And it was football and rugby in the winter with cross country and then cricket and athletics in the summer. The thought of rowing was just not on the, t- even though there were clubs based there, Tyne's been there for ages and the university clubs have been there. And I, I had to go to Aberdeen, Edinburgh, London, and then finally found rowing in Manchester at Agecroft. And it was, it was like everything I wanted to do in sport and what the sport provided that just aligned and everything kind of clicked. And I went, yep, this is, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to do physically. You just, it just, everything clicks. And, and your story is replicated literally thousands of times, tens of thousands of times around the country um, by people who have had exactly the same experience. My, my son started rowing eight weeks ago and he absolutely loved it for his first summer at his new school. And he's absolutely loving being in a boat, mm. just loving it. And w- w- what seems to be the best practice now for clubs to get more people through the door to kind of like make that first step into the boat onto the rowing machine what what are what are the the clubs that are best at growing new memberships doing um well this is something that this is good if we go right back to the the start of the conversation you know the difference between the club and and the ngb um or the difference in, in in what we're aiming to do. I, I think that for the NGB to, to turn around to the club and say, this is what you need to do and you need to be growing your club. And there are some clubs that they want to grow and, and, and they're absolutely fine. They're, they're, they're ha- they're, they are operating very successfully just, just as they are. I think that the role that we need to play is to, um, to offer best practice um, of those clubs that are successfully growing and uh, to allow those that want to grow to learn from those clubs how they've done it. And yeah, I, I think the answer to that is is not best told by me now in in this podcast because it's you know there are too many things that the successful successfully growing clubs are doing. I was talking to one of our board members is um, treasurer at Reading rowing club and they've been incredibly successful in growing recently trafford again we have a board member who's a trafford rowing club and they've been hugely successful recently in 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 growing and they've got all sorts of little um tips that they could give and the role that i think we need to have is to put those clubs in touch with um other clubs that want to learn from them in a sort of probably you know a, a zoom style format so they can you know talk to them and learn from we'd them. be happy to interview them all those things well you know uh, yeah absolutely i mean i think you know we, sh- we we should put them in touch with you because it doesn't need necessarily to be done by us but we need to be facilitating those conversations i i'm forever again i'm telling you the things that i, I bang on about ad nauseam um with with the teams um both executive and non-executive, I'm forever talking about the fact that we as an NGB need to facilitate the sport for those who are already doing it and enhance the experience of those who are already doing it. It's not for us, in my opinion, 
to tell people what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. Um, we can tell them what they're not allowed to do because you know we have to make sure that parameters are adhered to. But after we've established that things are being done within the rules, it's our job to facilitate and enhance, not necessarily to do and tell. I'm smiling as you're saying that, Mark, because um, one of the things that struck me about rowing is if you put eight rowers in a boat, every single one of them is right and knows exactly why the boat is going sideways down the river like a pig in a bog. Uh, and it's not them, it's the other seven. But it's that weird thing of you, you take very strong-willed, stubborn, opinionated individuals and they have to suborn all of that to the collective of the boat in order for it to work. So I'm getting the sense from you that, you know, you, you, you're recognizing what the catchment is, the sort of personality types that you're dealing with, you know, what makes a rower and rowers can be all shapes and sizes. But if it comes up from the ground, you will be there to provide structure and governance as necessary. But if it grows organically and it's working, then it's grown organically and it's working. So go with it. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got 30,000 members. We've got a 12 person board. Right. We can't get agreement around the 12-person board. How do we ever think we're going to get agreement around 30,000 members? You know, we're never, ever going to produce anything that everyone's going to be happy with. But that's not the point. If we can, the, the, the key is to make sure that if we, if we keep 500 people happy with each decision that we're making, it's always a different 500 people. Yeah. And I think the, the difficulty, um, you know, when you look at, at the, the sport, if you want to be critical of the sport, I think the the, the the bad thing is that it, on on the whole, it tends to cater to the same to the same thousand people all the time, and so twenty nine thousand people, you know, think something different. And you know, we we, we spent a, a lot of time. The team spent ages, very diligently, consulting people on things, and then they get to the end of a consultation and they come out with a uh, an outcome, and everyone complains and they say, "Well, look, we asked a thousand people." And this is what we we got, and they get nothing but barrage of abuse. And so the next time they they try even harder, and they go out and they ask two thousand people, and they still get a barrage of abuse because there are twenty eight thousand people that haven't been asked and feel that we haven't engaged and feel that they their opinion doesn't count, etc. You can never ever ask enough people to get a response that says, okay, this works. All you can do, in my view at least, is put the tools out there to let people make their own judgments and make their own decisions and create their own things. So if we are doing things that allow the sport to create and the sport then grows because the clubs and the individuals and our past members are doing things to help the sport grow, that's our job done. We don't have to be gardening in every garden. We have to tell people or give people the tools to allow them to garden themselves. It's, 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 it's gardening with a light touch. It's not invasive surgery. You're going to lose the leg. Just to kind of shift tack slightly. And briefly, when we talked bef before, um, I know that Tokyo is in the past and, you know, we were moving on and moving forward. You came in in 2018 with obvious ideas, which you've elaborated on. And then as you're moving forward, we've run smack into the face of COVID. Could you maybe outline some of the challenges and some of the um, some of the issues that you faced with your, I guess you'd call it your agenda and, and what you hope to accomplish and did and how COVID hindered that. But also I'm guessing in a little bit like in wartime, you have huge leaps forward in technology and, and um, engineering and, and all of those kind of things. 
what were the positives that came out of, of actually having something completely unforeseen happen, which was the pandemic? Well, the obvious positive was that people saw what the benefit, immediate benefit of a national governing body was, because the team, I think, did a, an outstanding job in trying to interpret what the rule, rules were that were being handed down. Mm. I think there was an element of, within that, there was an element of people within clubs having debates as to whether people should be allowed this or should, shouldn't be allowed this. And therefore, they were quite happy to have an NGB telling them what to do because it, it, it saved them having to have any arguments within the club as to what was allowed and what wasn't. Could people take sculling boats off racks, for example, and could they enter boathouses um, when nobody else was there? You know, everyone had a different view. And to be told what the answer was, I think, was, was helpful. So people, I think, responded very positively to uh, the huge amount of work that went in from, from the team in, in all that. The downside of that is that that is about telling people what to do, right? That, that is what we as an NGB do best. Um, and actually what I, I'd like us to do best is, is the growing and enhancing and facilitating stuff rather than the telling and ruling and governing stuff. Um, the governing stuff is... It's got to be the bread and butter. Of course it has, but it's not the exciting bit because it's not the bit that grows the sport. Um, so the, the, the huge challenge, obviously, was that people weren't racing, weren't on the water, and therefore they dropped their membership. And so our membership fell from just over 30,000 to just over 10,000 over the course of COVID. And obviously that has huge financial implications. The counter to that is that we weren't, running as many things obviously as we would have done otherwise so there was there were savings that came alongside that but you know it, it was certainly challenging from a financial perspective and we couldn't apply for a load of government money because we already had a certain amount of government money so we weren't suddenly about to get more um i think for me the most challenging thing is that covid generally I think has become a reason why people don't do things. Whenever somebody says to me, I'm sorry, I can't come to wherever because I've got COVID or I've just tested positive. You know that they've just changed their mind. COVID's become the excuse. And I think that there is, we, we got to a point where COVID became a, a reason almost why we weren't moving forwards on other stuff. Um, it might be unfair, but it just sort of felt felt like we could perhaps have made some more progress on a few sort of a few bits and bobs that we didn't. Um, but that's, I guess, because we were busily telling people and interpreting rules that were quite labyrinthine um, and complicated. So, and people were obviously going through a very difficult time. You know, everybody was, as you know, at home, and for some people that was extremely challenging. So, I don't want to sound critical of, of a difficult period but um i'm very happy that we're out of it now and able to, to to move forward with the agenda that we have of of growing the sport and delivering some of the technical solutions and tools that that will allow us to do that to look at that idea of facilitating rather than governing are, are you almost looking for people to sort of bring ideas to you yeah, and say we we've tried this we've done this this little thing or you know 
there's this technology here and there's this idea here and there's these groups of people and is there a way that we can put them all together i mean yeah. is, is, is that is that you're almost looking for suggestions from the floor very much so if, if we can help to promote and um and, and broaden the reach of something that is going to help to grow or improve the sport I, in my view it doesn't need to have been built by us uh it doesn't need to be an idea that's come from us um on the contrary i mean how many are we right we are if you include the high performance team in caversham we're 90 people not even um so if you take the team at hammersmith we're 35 people how on earth are we going to be able to do everything for everybody? We're just not. Um, and, you know, we've got, we've got 30,000 people and we have aspirations to get to 100,000 members over the next four years. And those are people who have all got ideas and um, means by which they can deliver on those ideas, but perhaps don't have... The, the mechanism to market it or to um, in, ingrain it in the system or, or any of that. And absolutely, I'd, I'd be only too delighted. We, we put out a sort of framework strategy in October, um, which you can find on, on the BR website. And it lists all the areas which I think we need to be doing something on. But it very clearly says, you know, you tell us what we're not getting right here you tell us what we're missing what should we be adding what should we be taking out of this um how can we improve it and interaction with our members for me is absolutely key that's why the 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 um the strategy section website has got feedback 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 all over it um and i can tell you that those feedback emails they come they come to my inbox um and um i discuss every single one of them with Alistair. So, okay, there we go. <laughs> dear, dear listeners, um, of, of least we've got, I think, a thousand in the UK, individual listeners, come up with your ideas and <laughs> fire them at Mark's inbox. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, every single idea that comes, I, I, I had an email yeah. the other day from somebody who said, you know, please will you reinstitute the Regatta magazine? He said, you know, I, I, I don't use the website. I don't read any of your online stuff. And I'd like Regatta magazine. And, and I wrote back to him and said to him, unfortunately, we're not about to do that um, because, you know, there, there, are, there were good reasons why we dropped it in terms of costs against how many people were reading it, in terms of the interaction, in terms of knowing what the impact, the positive impact of each of the different articles, we've got a much, much better handle by delivering that online. And because of the nature of our membership, because we have so many members who are members through their schools, they get signed up by their schools and you know, hundreds of copies of Regatta go to one place and then basically don't get distributed. And um, so a lot of people, you know, were never seeing it anyway, um, which isn't to say that I wasn't personally a huge fan of it. I have all my editions of Regatta sitting um, just over, uh, you know, in, in a corner, all piled up one on top of the other. So, you know, I'm a I'm a great fan of going back to look at past Regattas and and recalling things that uh, at the time passed me by, which you can't do on a website. And I, I understand why people 
who loved it miss it. But in terms of what we're delivering and how we're delivering it and what the value for money is for our members and whether it makes sense for the sport, et cetera, et cetera, I'm afraid we're not about to change that. And so when I got the suggestion in that we should, I wrote back and explained why we're not going to. So I'm not saying that every single idea that comes through is going to be something that we act on, but you know, there are lots of things that we are currently discussing about how we can, how how can we roll this out and how can we roll that out and how would we improve this area and that area and, you know, ideas from people. Um, I'm very, very happy to get them. Yeah. In terms of the strategic vision, is that the rowing everyone's sport? There is a strategy micro site, um, which you should be able to get to. Uh, hold on, let me see if I can find it quickly while we're chatting. Um, so if you type uh, strategy microsite into the search box, um, you will see something that says, have your say British rowing strategy. And if you just scroll down slightly on that, it says view the strategy microsite. And then on that, it lists all the areas that we need to be um that i think we need to be doing something so clubs coaching coastal commercial comms competition diverse inclusion indoor rowing junior school junior and schools masters membership outreach pathways but on and on it goes so in each of those areas there is um discussion about what we're trying to do how we're trying to do it and why we're trying to do it so anybody oh, is yeah. welcome to have a look at that and it's it's, it's an ongoing as you will see, it's, you know, send us your feedback on any part of it. The thing about Regatta magazine, um, and, you know, I'm speaking to someone who also used to, if it, if it hit the, if it hit the mat on, you know, that's basically the morning reading with a cup of coffee. Um, that was very much the format of the time. And, and even though there is the archival aspect and being able to go back and look at various articles or various results, we, we've moved on to a much more online focused, um, world so it's not necessarily you know you can't you can't wind the clock back in that respect but with regards to what you're saying about you know the any suggestions great because one of the first things you said when you came on at the beginning of the conversation was the whole point of having an ngb and having the british rowing structure in place is that when you when you leave your post or when you leave you are leaving the sport in a better place than where you found it and how we get to that place doesn't matter as long as we get to it so the 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 ideas that move us forward can literally come from anywhere and we're best from people who are doing it day in day out you know and that's part of what your structural um role is to 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 facilitate that evolution and development well, one of those quotes that is attributed to many, many people, and therefore I don't know who who really did first say it, but it's a very true, is it's amazing how much you can accomplish providing you're prepared to let other people take the credit. Hmm. And it's kind of a variation I, on on you know failures, uh, uh, failures in orf orphan, but success has many fathers sort of thing. It's it's yeah. not it's it's not Churchill, although everything gets ascribed to him. And we've already hit our Churchillian creep uh, with with the Sunlit Uplands reference before, which is beautifully worked <laughs> in. Thank you. <laughs> well, but the point is, you know, I I don't think that BR needs to be looking for all the solutions. Right? Fair enough. Um, yeah, um, unfortunately, I will probably end up sending you something like a, a five-page idea document of the various different things bouncing around my head. 
um, after I've, I've sent uh, something to James Terrell about the gamification of rowing machines, um, which he's working very hard on. Um, yeah, there was, I, I think, I mean, you, you've explained the difference between this, this thing that you end up having to do, which is essentially telling people what they can do and what they can't do, and what you'd rather be doing, which is enhancing and enabling. Um, in terms of that thing that, of telling people, you know, what they should be doing, um, when we, we were right at the start of the podcast and we were talking to people about ideas of who we should speak to, we both became aware that there was something of a push um, centrally in British rowing that the idea was to promote clean racing and racing with integrity, I think was the phrase that was used. But clean racing, clean training, um, clean coaching in British rowing. And very much when we heard that, we thought, ah, clearly this is this is about about drugs and then when we spoke to more people about it they said no 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 actually it's it's very much about people living within the spirit of the rules of racing um and the example that was given to us and i think both myself and aaron were slightly sheepish when we discussed it was some crews if they know they're racing in one division and they're not going to make the final will wind down way before the end um that is apparently not racing with integrity um and you know it, it's something that sort of i suppose as a social media presence we've kind of kicked off about slightly it does seem as though there is a current habit of clubs not not being entirely scrupulous about what athletes they put in which boats and then and then sort of essentially begging for forgiveness afterwards as a sport and possibly as a national governing body what are we doing to kind of really enforce it maybe is the wrong word but to promote integrity in racing and in training um well i think you've touched on two slightly different things there in the examples that you've given um because the first is perhaps racing cleverly um by which i mean you know if you're aware that you want to get a particular lane or you want a particular outcome or you've got to hold yourself back for a final rather than a heat that ultimately you're you're not necessarily out to win every heat you're out to win the competition and a problem that exists in all sports is that you know when any whenever you have a round system to get to a final outcome um you know it's it's the final result that people are focused on not whether you won your semi um so i think that's a slightly different scenario from the one that you you, you uh, indicated latterly where you're talking about crews you know putting in uh entries that 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 are inaccurate and then sort of pleading forgiveness afterwards and you're quite right we've had um a relatively high profile incident of this in um, recent weeks on a couple of occasions and um yeah it's fair to say we're not happy about it as a national governing body um 
and we we won't tolerate it um going forward um we've had a number of meetings about exactly how hard to deal with things on this particular occasion and making very clear where we stand and if you want to use sort of political terminology to draw a red line um is ultimately what we have to do i i'm not keen to throw books at people without fair warning having been given that books will be thrown but equally i wouldn't hesitate to throw the book once i'd warned that it was going to happen and making that clear to people i think is um crucial to to, to making the system work so i think loon and i in a in a in a proper well we're still proper racers now in our dotage, but back when we were rowing for Agecroft and you were down at Dorney for the day and you might be entered in two or three different things, I think we've both had an occasion where we've been in, in IM1 and, you know, we've, we've basically got about a thousand metres down and we're, we're not going to qualify and we have more races to come, so we wind down. That's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of one thing. I think last year at Henley and Loon and I talked about it um, when we when we covered Henley last year. Uh, there was a club, uh, and uh, I know that you probably wouldn't mention them, Mark, but you know it was essentially Oxbrooks. We felt got a warning because they were basically racing to the barrier, and whoever was ahead, and then they uh, it, it looked like they were then kind of paddling home, which was very much against the spirit and, as it turned out, eventually the rules of racing. But the clubs that you're um, alluding to more recently, I think Lewin, did you, was it last October and November, you, you kind of pointed out on our Twitter stream that certain people were racing in certain categories where they should have perhaps been in other categories. We got quite a, a lot of opprobrium for it. And then it all flared up quite recently. And it, it, yeah. it's quite, it's quite a vexed issue because that one of the things that I, I love about rowing, Mark, is that no matter whether you're 20 or, you know, in, 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 we are now both in our forties, when you line up on the, on the start line of a race and you take a look across at the opposing crew and your opposing number, you kind of know that your 2K score is around about what their 2K score is, or, you know, you, you know, your fitness levels are comparable because that's how, that's how the racing structure works essentially. But if you're looking across and you know, someone is a category, two categories, 20 seconds, you know, 10 seconds, 15, 30 seconds faster than you. It's, it's a little bit like walking slowly forward into machine gun fire. It's, it's not really a fair and level playing field. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, so I, I don't want to talk specifics because, you know, I did do a, fair amount of research before talking about the let's let's leave it at various clubs you know it does seem as though there are just numerous now numerous reports of things that that, that just seem really quite sharp practice i'm very glad to hear that sort of like <laughs> the concept of throwing the book at people is is being discussed you know again what can we do as a sport um, rather than just as a governing body to promote fair play. At the end of the day, we're, we're in it to have fun, right? Principle, yeah, you, you, why do you do a sport? You do it because you enjoy it, you have fun. And part of having fun can be winning, yes, but you know, you've got to feel that you're in a fair fight. And it's for us to make sure that the sport is just full of people who are in of that 
mind rather than, oh, I'm going to go out there and see if I can win by, you know, slightly sharp practice, should we say. Um, I'm not aware of this being a common thing. I'm interested to hear you sort of imply that you've seen it from multiple clubs because I I certainly haven't. Um, But I'm not as close to it on a day-to-day basis as you guys are. Um, So if you've got information to that effect, then, you know, people should let us know. Um, But the instance that I am aware of, which has happened a couple of times recently with the same club, yeah, look, I mean, the reality is we're not happy about it. And we were making that unhappiness very clear uh, in writing to the club in question. And uh, a third strike will not be... um, will not be welcomed, shall we say. Okay. But very happy to he said. Um what I would probably do is, is say that I'll I'll look into various conversations that we've had with people and had online and I'll 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 drop a, an email through. Are you about um, to, are you about to compile a dossier, Lewin? Are you about to do a dodgy dossier? I, I wouldn't uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far, but I, I you know, we, we we discussed this. I mean, we, we yeah. said that, you know, we operate as a sport on an honour system to a certain extent. You know, we, we, we do have this stated culture of fair play. Um, we are, we can, we hold ourselves to a standard above the tour de france let's say we we think we are better than this sport or that sport and i I won't get into like too many details because arguably this is our internal internal way of viewing ourselves but i think that if we can't keep saying that and if we don't keep living up to that you know we are really going to lose something as a sport um and really going to you know, some of the things that we can present to other sports people who are tired of going up against people they don't trust. And it's like, well, why don't you try rowing? Nobody ever puts a motor on the bottom of their boat. Um, Would be something I would say to a cyclist. Um, And being able to have that flag of integrity, I think is incredibly important. Yeah. I, I totally agree. It's very, very important that the that the sport and the competition is clean. Loon and I have discussed PEDs on the podcast um, in in the past. We are pretty proud and happy that we are touch wood. He says, looking for something vaguely wooden in his front room. Um, we're one of the only sports that hasn't has a major scandal at, at some point in the kind of modern era. And I'm very aware that we are only one failed PED test away from having the same reputation as other sports. Lewin, correct me if I'm wrong here, but apart from the chap at the indoors and the two younger juniors, I think we're reason we have a culture of doing it clean. Um, those are the only, those are the only things that I could quote in on the British side. Yes. In terms of British rowing, Mark, um, obviously you've got the elite programs in the higher end of the club of the club programs. Um, we recently had a chat with Mark Lewis, who's a, a YouTube fitness 
person who's on uh, male hormone replacement therapy. He's on TRT. And he feels this will be a coming thing in age group categories uh, as it becomes more common practice in, in Britain. On PEDs, on the, on the elite and, high, and higher performance side, but also on kind of the, the cultural side, does British rowing have a, is there an educational push, an educational drive to keep our sport clean or? or? We, we obviously have policies around it. And from an international perspective and Kavasham, obviously, you know, people are, you know, yes, people, this is all explained at great length. And uh, the, the nature of the sport is obviously such that you're going to be letting down you're going to be letting down all your crew if you're stupid enough to go down this route. And we've seen this happen in athletics in the relays and the impact that it has if if, if one person is daft enough to do it. So I think we have a, a basic advantage in that, yeah. that you know any one individual would know that they, they don't know what crew they're going to be in come a World Championships or Olympic Games. And then they discover they're in eight and they let down eight other people if they cross the line first. So, so I, I think there is a there is an element of pressure there which doesn't exist perhaps when in an individual sport, um, which isn't to say that we aren't totally on top of the risk of it. At a domestic level, it's an interesting question. I mean, I I have to say I don't know exactly what we do there. I would need to check. Um, I, I'm absolutely sure that we will have a, a policy in place, but um, off the top of my head, I don't know what the details are of testing. I can tell you that when the guy uh, tested positive at the indoor championships, oh, the it was the World Indoor Rowing Championships. Yeah, the, it was it was over in Paris, uh, and he was he was a British entrant, but he he was not under the auspices of British rowing, which was a you know a frustration. Um, going back to the whole you know question about what why do you join an NGB? You know, this was a guy who was on his ergo as a as a non-rower as a as somebody who hadn't affiliated to the national governing body but was competing as a brit and therefore it came back to us as the ngb and we didn't know anything about him so mm. there's a limit to what we can do in that scenario but for people who are under our umbrella um and hopefully the number of people who are under our umbrella will grow substantially for all the reasons that we discussed earlier in in, in the conversation um yeah the 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 rules and uh the testing and the policies are very clear i think was there anything that you sort of like wanted to take this opportunity to push out to our sort of little community of listeners oh crikey that we haven't covered um i didn't come in with a message i wasn't expecting to have to, to be honest <laughs> Your comms um, team will be emailing you even as even as we they speak. will. You They'll be saying to me, message. "Why didn't you take? Why didn't you take the opportunity to say X, Y, and Z?" Um, look, I mean, no, I, I, I suppose, I suppose what I would say, you know, if I was trying to to, to talk to a sceptical audience, should we say, is that the natural response to to the NGB tends to be. Oh, bloody hell, you know, British rain, what the hell do they do for us? And the answer is that your sub goes towards enhancing the sport generally, and there are large sums of money that get spent on small areas of the sport where a problem occurs, and it might have been your problem, but it had to be, happened to be a problem that came to another club. 
And we spend a great deal of time and effort in helping the club with a difficult member or a member who's been set upon by other people within the club or whatever the problem might be. We spend a lot of time focused on helping those those people. And of course, that stuff never hits the light of day because the very nature of it is that it is something that has to remain confidential. Um, but it's a it's a significant part of of what we do. Um, so I I would say what I'd love to get out of our members as as we look to grow the sport because ultimately we will only grow it if members get members. And to try and explain to our members that what we do is a massive benefit to them today, even if they don't notice it, but also to the huge benefit of the sport in the future is going to be key to persuading people to stay with us as members, even when they're not necessarily racing or not in need of um, uh, insurance. So what I'd love to see in the sport is that people affiliate to British rowing because this is their sport. And because, as I say, we are the trustees of that sport and therefore tasked with making sure that it is as relevant in 20 and 30 years time as it is today. And that wherever it is that we reminisce about our great days on the water, whether it's at the Forley Bar or whether it's down the local with our you know, friends that we rode with many years ago in races that got better and better the further that we got from them, um, the NGB has got a crucial part to play and our members have got a crucial part to play in that. So to retain a membership of BR at £30 or £60 a year going forward is of huge benefit in bringing the sport of rowing to a wider audience and to helping it thrive and grow. So I'd say to people, please, you know, stay with the NGB, stay with British rowing and help us use the sport. As I said, right at the beginning. And as I said, when I first came in as chair, use the sport as a force for good in the wider community, because it can do amazing things for people. And it would be great to see it doing more than it is already. Mark, oh, thank you very much. Very positive measures. Thank, thank you very much for having me.